And man, it is so good to be back with you here this morning. I've missed you guys. Um, I was away two weeks ago. I just had some leave uh, that needed to be taken. Otherwise, I'd lose it. So I did. And then last week, they put me out at Sterling. Um, But it's great to be back. And the message that I have for you is is one from a passage that we we are, we, we are, we have heard quite regularly. Um, it's from Jeremiah 29. So if you have your Bibles there, 29 verses 4 to 14. You might not recognize the 4 to 14, but if I said Jeremiah 29 verse 11, uh, it just happens to fall into it. Uh, that is a very famous passage. Um, some of you would have mugs with it on. Uh, you would have t-shirts or camps that have been spoken on Jeremiah 29 verse 11. And if you have not heard of it before, um, Maybe when I read it, you will hear it. It's, it's for, the, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. If you have not heard that as a Christian, this will definitely not be the last time we uh, talk about it or you hear it. But in order for us to understand it, Mark's actually quite alluded to quite a bit of it already in the announcements this morning. Um, we need to understand the context in which we find ourselves in. Otherwise, we're going to take this amazing virtue, which we, uh, which we love, and we're going to apply it to ourselves. But if we don't understand the context, man, we're going to miss some amazing parts about this chapter and about this section. And in order for us to do this, we need to go all the way back to Jer- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we're going to look at a promise that God makes to the people of Israel. And you've heard me talk about this before, but for those of you who haven't, what happens is that God makes a twofold promise. He says to the people of Israel, if you pursue me and follow me, follow me I'll bless you. So he says, man, I'll, I'll make your families big. Your, your gardens and your crops are going to produce, they're going to have lots of it. You're going to do well in that area. You're going to harvest loads of it. Man, I'm going to make your cattle have lots of other cattle. Your families are going to be large. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to make sure that other nations come and praise you, bring homage, come and give you glory for how great you are. I am going to be your God and you're going to be my people. He says, however, if you don't follow me, If you follow other gods, if you pursue what the other nations have, man, I'm going to curse you. And he says that blatantly. And it starts off uh, quite simple and then get progressively worse. So it starts off with things like, man, work's going to be tough. (laughs) Hey, how many of us have a tough work? It's going to be tough. Work's going to be difficult. Then it gets even worse that, that, man, you're going to notice that there's going to be famine, droughts. It's going to get even worse than that as well. If, if you haven't responded then, then I'm going to come and there's going to be war. And you're going to lose the war because I'm not going to defend you. And it even gets even worse than that. He goes, man, what I'm going to do is if you still haven't responded, I'm going to scatter you to the ends of the earth, to other nations. I want to take you away from this land that I have given you. And God gives this list in progressively worse because he's hoping that once work got frustrating, that the people were going to notice, man, this is tough. Man, this is difficult. Why is this so? We haven't got as much crop as we normally do. This season has not been good. Man, we need to turn back to God. We have sinned. And he says so in Deuteronomy 30. He says, if you come back to me, man, I will bless you again. You'll be my people. I'll make you into that great nation I said I would. I would gather you from all of the ends of the earth. And God sticks to his word. He keeps his promise. And what he does is we see this throughout the the book of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Judges, we see this take place. 
we see there are 12 judges, and, and what would happen was the people of Israel, at the beginning of Judges, had no leader. And so what they did was they did their own thing. They served their own gods. And what did God say would happen if you did that? He would allow other nations to rise up. And what he does is other nations around them rise up and oppress them. Things are going bad. There's drought. There's famine. The people realize it. They cry out to God for help. God hears their cry. And he, as he promised, he, he says, okay, fine. I'll come and restore you again. He rises up a judge. These judges were things, people like Samson, Gideon, Deborah. We've heard those stories before. And they would come and they would liberate Israel and People would serve God for a generation or two, and what would happen again is no leader would be around, and they would start serving other gods. And we see this happen 12 times. This, the cycle takes place through the book of Judges. Eventually, they get a king. He's, the first king they get, his name is Saul. Man, Saul is a, a really average king. He doesn't do a good job, so God anoints another one, David. We all know King David. And King David comes along. He is the poster boy for all kings. He is the king that everyone will be judged based upon. All the kings after him will be leveled to the standard of how were they compared to David. Not because David was a saint. <laughs> David had so much blood on his hands he wasn't allowed to build the temple. He committed adultery and then would later kill that lady who fell pregnant as a result of her husband. Because she was pregnant. He was not a saint at all. But the reason why he becomes the standard was not because he was necessarily always good, but because he was a man after God's own heart. And kings, from then on out, are judged based on that. How good are they in serving and bringing the people that they are ruling over to God? They are not decided to be a good king whether or not they were good at economic policies. They were not decided to be good kings on how good they were politically or how good they were at fighting war. You were a good king or a bad king. If you, you're a good king if you led people to God. You're a bad king if you led them away. Does that make sense? And so after David, what happens is there's a split in the nation. Solomon exists and there's a split in the nation. Split in the nation into two. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom consisted of ten tribes. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Now, the northern kingdom never, ever, 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 ever had a good king. Not one. They never, ever, no matter how many prophets God sent, no how many nations raised up against them, no matter what happened, that God tried to get their attention, they did not listen, and they did their own thing. To a point that God sends a, a nation called the Syrians to come along. And the Syrians come and they wipe them out. And what the Syrians did, they had a trick to make sure that this nation would never rise up ever again, is they would interbreed amongst the nation. So firstly, they would destroy you, take over, but just to make sure that you would never rise up against them as a nation, they would interbreed because you now lost your sense of identity. Does that make sense? You weren't the Israelites anymore because now you were kind of mixed in, and so they never ever rose up ever again, and the northern kingdom ceases to exist. The southern kingdom, however, has two good... Uh, the southern kingdom of the two tribes has six good kings, just six. There were 42 kings altogether, and only six were good. So majority bad, some good scattered along the way. But there was one particular bad king. He was the worst of the worst. Scripture says he was the worst king ever. There was no king as bad as him before him than himself, and his name was Manasseh. Manasseh 
pursued other gods and other, other idols with all his heart. He loved it. It was his thing to do. He would build temples. He would build high places on every hilltop he could possibly find. But he was particularly bad because he served a, king named, a god named Asherah. Now, Asherah was a horrible, horrible, horrible god because he required as part of your worship what you would have to do is you would have to burn your children as part of your worship. And what he would do, Manasseh, is he would take his son and he would burn as a sacrifice to Asherah. And then he would take this carven image and place it in the temple of God and say, you can worship him there. God is fuming, you can imagine. He has this meant to be, this king is meant to lead the people to God. Instead, he's leading him furthest, further away than anyone has ever done. And God says, no matter what happens from here on out, I will send these people of Israel into exile. And God's hand is stayed a bit because Manasseh uh, lives for, uh, rules for about 55 years, if I'm not mistaken. His son takes over rules for three years. He gets killed. It was a really bad time. And then what will happen is his grandson will come in, Josiah, who was one of the good ones. And God says, okay, fine. I will not send them into exile until Josiah dies. And Josiah dies. And then what happens is God raises a nation that Mark was talking about called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come and they wipe out Israel. They come and they leave no stone and turn. They destroy the walls, they destroy the houses, they destroy the temple, they destroy it all. And in that there's a lot of bloodshed. Lots of lots of bloodshed. Families, men, women, children are all killed in this. And as Mark alluded to, what would happen is the Babylonians would like the Syrians that would interbreed. What they would do is they would take the best of the best. They would come into a city and they would take those who are skilled with their hands, who, who could farm, who could do carpentry, who were leaders, who were good at uh, uh, political uh, things. They would come and take leaders back to their city. The reason why they would do this is because if you bring the best into your city, your city is going to flourish. And they would leave behind, as Mark said earlier, some they would leave people behind. And those would be the old, the frail, those who would not able to get themselves together. No leaders would be left behind because they'll never really be able to gather themselves to cause an uprising. They could never do that. And so they would leave those behind. Now today, I'm not going to, Mark's spoken about those who'd be left behind. I'm going to talk about those who went. And those who would be gathered all the way and taken off to Jerusalem, I mean to Babylon, it's not a quick little trip. They didn't hop into a couple of buses and travel across. It took about three to four months that's a lot of time to grieve because your family has been taken. You've lost your livelihood. Your friends have been killed. You are captive, not necessarily prisons of war, weren't treated really well. And for four months, you'd be taken to a city. And by the time you got there, you would have hated every single bit with all of you, the Babylonians. Now, Scripture doesn't say that. But just on the human nature of ourselves, we can agree that's probably what they felt. Hate, bitterness, Anger, sad, hopelessness would have been things that they have come around. And when I say hopelessness, there might have been a slight inkling, a slight hope going, if we return to God, he might bring us back. And it's in this situation, in this circumstance, that we find this letter read. Do you get where we are at the moment? Does that make sense? So this is where this letter is read. So let's, uh, a letter is written by Jeremiah, who was left behind in Jerusalem, 
and he writes this letter to the people who are in exile, and he says the following. Let's look at verse 4. He says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it is the welfare, for it's in its welfare you find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Here's verse 10. Here we get in. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll bring you back to this place. For when 70 years are done and dusted, when you spend 70 years in Babylon, I am going to bring you back to Jerusalem, says God. For we have verse 11, the one we love. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me and you will seek me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So, again, I can imagine... Scripture doesn't think, but the way I picture this would go down is he has this letter that arrives from Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was the only prophet that would prophesy the truth. When the people of Israel uh, were going to go into exile, the Babylonians were coming up against them. The other prophets, other prophets were going, don't worry, God will deliver you. You're fine. You're going to be okay. And Jeremiah was going to go, no. God is sending you into exile. Better be prepared. Get right with God. This is happening. Get ready for it. And no one would listen to him. But he was the only one that got it right. And here comes this letter from this man who spoke the truth. And there might have been this little inkling, a little bit of expectation that Jeremiah is going to come along and say, Guys, pack your bags. God is going to take you home. You've repented. You've restored, and God is going to restore you. Just like the, uh, those who were uh, slaves to the Egyptians, and God said, pack your bags, for tomorrow we leave Egypt. Man, they were hoping, I'm sure, that there was going to be, pack your bags, for tomorrow we're going back to Jerusalem. God's going to bring you back to this promised land. God's going to do a miracle. He's going to bring some things down on the city. Who has done this to you? And yet he doesn't. He comes out from completely left field, and he says, no, no. Get ready. Plant gardens. Eat of them. That takes time. And build houses. That takes time. Give your sons and daughters into marriage. Take wives and, and husbands for yourselves. You don't worry about being pregnant because you're not going to have to travel pregnant because this is going to take some time. Settle down. This is the place that I want you to be here because I have a work for you to do in the city. I have a plan for you here to glorify my name, and to do it. See, what I, what I think God has realized is that the people of Israel had their eyes fixed on Jerusalem and not on the situation. They had their longing for something else that they weren't aware of what God wants to do in the situation that they found themselves in. 
two weeks ago when I was preparing for this message for Sterling, and I knew I was going to come here and re-preach it. It's praying and it's going, Lord, what do you want to say to uh, Sterling Baptist Church as a whole across all, all the campuses? And I felt the Lord say to me, Joe, I want you to say to them that I have a plan for them in the season that you're in. I know that we, as I sit across and I look across this room, there's a number of us that have a variety of different circumstances, different situations, some great and some tough, some difficult and some good. And yet I want you to know, church, as a congregation and as individuals, God has a plan for you in the season you're in. He has a work for you to do. He wants you to glorify Him in the season you find yourself in. And the danger is that often what we do is we look to the next season. We look with our eyes fixed on Jerusalem and we go, that is next. Oh man, work is really busy at the moment. It's, it's, just, it's keeping me so busy. Seasons like this, busyness at work doesn't come along often. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I capitalize on this. And when that dies down a bit, then I will start to do. Or when the work starts to die down a bit, we go, oh man, work is tough at the moment. It's, not, it's very scarce. I need to make sure I work as hard as I can until things get good again. And when things get good, then what I would do is then I would do. We particularly see this with, uh, with high school students as well. We have, uh, I don't think we have, we have, might have one this morning. Is, is that we, what we, we think is, man, I can't wait for after school. God's got, I'm going to do stuff then. We look to the next season. We look ahead and we go there, but we forget that God has placed you in the high school you find yourself in, in the class you're in, because he has a work for you to do. And church, I feel strongly for you this morning that God has a work for you to do in the season you're in. He does. No matter what it is, he has a work. He wants to glorify his name and use you greatly to do so. Man, Israel got this right. He got this right. They, they did it. And I'm not going to tell you the stories, but I just have to say some of the names and you will know from Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Man, great men. Leaders, uh, prominent positions, but yet glorifying God in ways that no one else could because they were faithful to God in the season they were in. Man, Daniel and the lion's den. Man, he did, he did great things. Second in command in Babylon. Second in command, bringing great glory to God. And yet, it was in a difficult season of the captivity. Oh man, Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. Oh, Ezra, coming back, bringing the first wave back. Men who were in difficult situations yet were faithful to God and did great things for the glory of God. In the season they were in. And what a shame it would have been if they had their eyes on Jerusalem and not looking at what God wanted them to do right there and then. I am not saying that you do not look forward to your next seasons. I'm just saying, don't forget that you're in one where God has placed you in to use you. Make sure that happens. Make sure we do that. And we know that God does. He certainly has a plan for us. We, we read this in Jeremiah uh, 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 Jeremiah 29, verse 11, the, the one we love. He says, I have a plan for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And this is an incredible verse with an incredible promise. But it, 
there's a danger to this verse, and I see it often, is that we take this idea that the fact that God has a plan for us, we take our plans and we mash them together and we say, God, do my plan, right? It's common. We go, Lord, you have a plan for me. So therefore, this is what I would like for you to do in making my life. Make it happen. Instead, what we would like this this verse to read, this one we love so much, is that we would really like it to say, the Lord would say, for I know the plans that I have for you. It is to fulfill your plans. That's what we really want. And there's a danger in that. that because what it does, it makes this verse a self-centered verse rather than a God-centered verse. It makes it about us rather than about God. And we miss out so much. And the application of such a verse is that we come to God with our plans and we lay it at his feet. And we, because that's good. Telling God your dreams and desires and what you want is good. So come and say, Lord, here there are. This is what I would like to happen. But at the end of it, what we say is, not my will be done, but yours. And Lord, would you reveal to me the goodness of what you have planned for me? And you see, one of the things that we need to realize is that God is a good God. He, God is a good Father who gives us good gifts all the time. That's what Scripture says. He does. God is a God who loves us with an unconditional love that is unwavering, steadfast, eternal. And every bit of action and interaction that he has for us comes out of that love for us. And parents will know here this, this morning that just because your kid wants it, sometimes it isn't be the best thing for them. And out of love, you have to say no. Out of love, you have to discipline. So sometimes our lives are difficult, but God is still acting towards us in love. And there's this faith that we have to have in this God that we go, man, God, you have... A plan for me. It is not what I want, but you love me with a love that blows my mind that nothing else can compare to. So therefore, I trust and have faith that your plan is best. And we need to. Church, he has a plan for you. A great plan. The problem that we have, though, is that God doesn't always make that plan very clear to us, hey? He doesn't. Man, how great would it be if God had a website that we could just log on to, type in our names, Joseph Rolf Harrison Prince, that is my full name, believe it or not, um, and then we'll go, okay, Joe, this is what you're going to do today. A little diary, a day planner that you, when you became Christian, it, it was handed to you with your name on it, uh, Mark, here, here we go, this is what you have to do today, and at 11 o'clock you're going to meet this person, you're going to tell this person about Jesus, and, and this is how it's going to go, and this is what you need to do in that. He doesn't do that. It would be great, but he doesn't. But why? Why doesn't God make that super clear to us? He says he has a plan, but he never tells us what it is. Very clearly. And the reason why is because if there was a website or day planner that we could buy or get, when we didn't know what to do, where would we run? To the website or the day planner and not to God. And what God wants us to do, he, the reason why he says, man, I have a plan for you, and he keeps quiet about it. He wants you to come and ask what it is. Lord, I, I want to be faithful to you. I want to know what you have planned for me. I want to live in it. Lord, show me today. By, show, give me eyes to see where your spirit is moving and working so that I might be a part of it. Lord, help me today to live in your plan. What is it? What do you want me to do in this situation? 
it draws us closer to Him. It forces us to come to Him and say, Lord, what is it? I want to live for you. It forces relationship. Man, if there was a website, we'd have a great relationship with it, but not with God. And this is come and find from me what this is. But Scripture does give us some guidelines to what we, where we should be looking and what we should be doing. The first one we see is in this passage that we find ourselves in. Verse 4 talks about how we need to be in the city, uh, living in the city. It would go on to say that we need to, in verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city. And church, I want you to know that God has a plan for you in the city that we find ourselves in. We've been talking about this a lot, so I'm not going to uh, destroy and spend a big chunk of time on here. I did it sterling, but I'm not going to do so much here. But remember the salt and light thing. We are salt and light called for this as individuals and as a church. And man, we're doing things. Joe's got the soup kitchen going, and I know a lot of you are serving. So a lot of you are cooking, a lot of you are donating. There's things that are happening here. But the danger that we will find ourselves in is, as a church now, is going, oh, we as a church do something. But yet nothing is being done on your part. Because we are called as individuals to be faithful towards the city for the glory of God and as a community. And man, a soup kitchen might not blow your hair back, and that's fine. That's perfectly okay. But what are you doing because we are called to be here for the glory of Jesus. We are called to make a difference here. And man, we are a small church with a bunch, as I like to call, average Joes. Because my name is Joe, so it just makes sense. We just, a, we, here we are. But we're going to be faithful. And look, we've raised, look, look how the soup kitchen connections are happening. God is bringing the right people in and things are starting to happen. Let's be faithful with what we've got because we have called to be a part of the city. And I understand that resources, time, ability is limited at times. But what are you doing? What are you doing? Because there's something, there's a plan for you here. A plan for you to be a part of this. Do it. Do it. The second one is that God has called us and has a plan for you in this church. He does. There's this, there's this imagery that's used, and I'm sure you've heard it before, that the church is the body of Christ. And the reason why Paul uses this imagery is because while we are one, there's also many parts. So while we are one body, there's also an individualism to it. There's fingers, there's toes, there's hands, there's feet, there's all those kinds of things. There are parts to it. And we here consist of the body here out at the ridge. But there are many parts, thank goodness, right? We are one, but we're different. There's, there's celebration of different gifts. There's celebration of different uh, talents and different skills and different uh, personalities that we find inside here. And I want you to know that each part here has a role to play in making this body tick. Man, it does. It, it's, some of you might be getting old. And you know what it's like for when, when a body part doesn't, just doesn't want to do what it's meant to do, Right? Man, I, I did exercise the other day uh, for the first time in a while because my son is uh, two and a half months and pretty much this whole year I haven't trained. And when I did, I forgot that you're meant to take things slowly. And so the typical prince, stubborn, 27-year-old male just decided with others training around him that he better go flat out. And so I did where the next day I had T-Rex arms. 
I couldn't straighten my arms for a week because my muscles were so sore. And man, I just couldn't function. You know how hard it is to pick something up with little arms. You just can't do it. You can't reach and it's agonizing and it's sore and you just can't. And that's what it's like for the body when the arms don't function and are meant to be the arms. Man, we can do it. We can get down and it's difficult, it's tough, but life is just not as good as it should be. And this church will function and it will go when members of the body are functioning. But if there are members that aren't, man, we are hindered. We have slowed down. And and we, we see that every single one of you, if you believe in Christ, if you are saved, you have a gift. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11. It says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Talking about spiritual gifts here. How incredible is it that the Holy Spirit has come along and at least given you one gift. And it's not a lucky packet draw. It's not like we all sat here and he suddenly just scattered the gifts along like this. And they just randomly landed somewhere. And whatever you got, you got. No. With his plan that he has prepared before the foundations of the world for you to do good works. He's come along and gone. This is the gift that I need you to do. I want you to use this. So don't worry about the size of it. Don't worry about how big or small it might be. It doesn't matter because God has come along and gone, Debbie, I have a gift for you. Diane, I have a gift for you. Here it is. Use it. And man, if you're faithful that God does it. And we start to do, man, there are many minutes. Every single one of our ministries needs more people. I can't even come here and punch just the children's ministry because we need there. But so does production. But so does hospitality. But so does the worship team. So does the people that count money at the back. Everyone needs more people involved. There's space for you. And if there's something that we haven't got but God has laid on your heart, let's start it. Let's do it. And so does the soup kitchen. Yeah, there we go. Do it, do it. Because there's a strange thing that happens in this. Is that when we do this and when you start to serve, where God has placed you to serve, there's some part of it, there's a welfare for you. We see this, right? We see this in here. There's this welfare in serving. He says, benefit the city because in its welfare, there we go, you find some. And why is that? Well, on a practical level, when you start to function in this body, man, this church ticks better. And when this church ticks better and people are freed up to do actually what they're called to do, because some people are doing 101 things, man, they get to go act in their gifting, man, we benefit. We benefit when someone who's got the gift of encouragement is allowed to work in that and not be the guy that's doing discipline, but rather encouragement. We, work, we benefit from people doing that. We just do. just naturally just happens. But in you serving as well, you get experience Christ in the way you've never experienced him before. Because he has saved you for that. He has saved you for a good work. You're not, good works don't save you, but you're saved for good works. And we get experience Christ and the purpose that he's created for you. You can experience in a way in which you aren't currently experiencing him now. It's for your welfare and good as well. And I realized this morning, man, that we are sitting here going, I don't know, Joe, what my spiritual gift is. But remember why God doesn't give us loads of clarity on what it is. So that we can run to him and ask. 
You might go and say, I don't know what to do in this, this city. I don't know what to do in this suburb. And pray and ask God, Lord, give me eyes to see the injustices around that you want me to be involved in. That you want not, not to be involved in the injustices, but stop the injustices. Which ones do you want me to stop? How can I be salt to that? Lord, what is my spiritual gift? Give it to me. Show me. Let me see so that I can serve and do it. Not for my sake, but for yours. And when we do that, church, we'll call waves in this city. We'll call waves in this community because we'll be a body that's functioning, doing what Christ has called us to do. And man, he will take our five loaves and two fish and he will do what he wills with it. And that's the best thing we can do. I'm going to close on this point. And uh, it's, a, it's still a lengthy point, but I want to close on it. Can we really take Jeremiah chapter, verse 11, chapter 29, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and apply it to ourselves today? Can we? Because I, let's think about it. This is a very, very specific situation, right? Exile taken by the Babylonians. <laughs> 2,500 plus minus years ago given to them. I, and, and we're not really in exile. And, and so can we take that to ourselves in the tip of Africa in a small little suburb called Sunning Ridge? And can we apply it to ourselves? My answer is going to shock you, but it's better than you've ever expected. The answer is yes, but far more than just yes. And for me to explain that to you is this. We, we need to understand in uh, that we have to go all the way to Daniel 9. Daniel, as I mentioned earlier, is part of this exile period. But he finds himself at the back end of the 70 years. So 70 years, he's, he's big leader in Babylon. 70 years is coming to an end. And he realizes that this coming, the 70 years is coming to an end. And we're meant to be going back to Jerusalem. But nothing seems to be happening. So Daniel says this in Daniel 29, verse 11. In the first year of Darius, um, so it's Daniel 9, verses 1, 2, 3. It says this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was the ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the law given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he starts to pray. He starts to get down and he, he, he starts to put ashes upon himself and he starts to pray to the Lord. Lord, what's happening here? And he prays this lengthy prayer. And at the end of, near the end of chapter 9 of Daniel, what we see is some things happen with Gabriel. You can read that. And God replies to him and answers him and says, what I'm going to do about these 70 years. And he says this. The NLV says it like this. It says, 77. So some of your translations say about 70 weeks. Are creed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgressions. This is an amazing stuff here. To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and appoint the most holy place. Okay, so a whole lot of stuff went down there. But essentially, all those... Those who are studying Hebrew and, and commentaries take this vision that's given to him by God, this answer, this re response, and they go, what the 77s means is 70 years times 7. For them, that's what this means. 70 years times 7. Which if you do your maths quickly, which I had to do my maths, it's 490 years. And essentially what he's saying to him, he's saying, man, in 490 years, this 
is going to be fulfilled. But the 70 years does happen. We see at the end of the normal 70-year allotted period, the first wave of people start going back to Jerusalem. So what does he mean by 490 years later, there is going to be a great atonement for sin. There's going to be this ultimate future. There's going to be a great hope. Do you want to know what happens in 490 years? Jesus pitches up. Jesus arrives. Church, do you want the ultimate future? You need to run to Christ. The ultimate future, the ultimate hope, the ultimate peace, the ultimate well-being is found in Jesus. Man, do you want to hope? Run to Jesus, for he is the hope of the world. Do you want a peace? Go to Jesus, because he is the Prince of Peace. Do you want a future? Go to Jesus, because he says, I have come to give life and life abundantly. Do you want to be a part of something that has an eternal, everlasting effect? Go to Jesus, because he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. Oh man, do you want to have an lasting satisfaction? Go to Jesus, for he is the living water. And he says to us, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never hunger again. Do you want a place of protection? Go to Jesus, for he's the shepherd that will protect you and fight the wolves away. Do you want a love that is beloved for who you are, regardless of the bad things you've done? Go to Jesus. Because man in Christ, he has loved us with an everlasting love that is unwavering, eternal, and unconditional. And we see that in the cross. Church, we can take this verse of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and we can take it out of context and take it and apply it to ourselves with the dreams that you have to make God force his hand. And it might have some effect and give you some hope, but we miss out so much. But when you realize, man, this verse applies to me, but applies to me in Jesus, that in Christ there is an ultimate plan, something far greater than what the Jews experienced, far greater that is found in Christ and is willing and waiting and ready for for you to get man we get so much more you get so much more and I understand that there might be some of you this morning that don't know Christ and that's and and this is waiting for you it's ready man we see this in the verse he says and verse 12 he says then you will call upon me and you'll come and pray to me and I will hear you and the great part for those of you who don't know Jesus is man there is a gospel that is waiting for you. This is Jesus that is waiting for you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change. That is the wonder of the gospel. You don't have to get yourself right before you get saved. Is that you can come as you are. And when you cry out to him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins because you are Lord, he will hear you and you'll be saved. But I also realize that some of us are Christian. A majority of us are Christian. And as a result... We've also wandered and weighed and gone astray. But remember that the Jews weren't in exile because they were nice people. They were in exile because they were not faithful. They were serving other gods. And yet God says to them, I will restore you. Come back to me. He says in verse 13, you will seek me and you'll find me and you'll seek me with all your heart. And here it is. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore you, your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you. 
There's this restoration that happens. There's this bringing back again. Man, come as you are. And when you do that, he will restore you. He will restore you. You might have been seeking your hope in something else. You know, satisfaction in something else. You might be hoping your peace and other things might be found in something else. And he says, come to me, for in me you'll find it. And if you're willing to do that, he will restore you. Isn't that awesome? This is the wonderful Jesus we serve, church. And he has a hope and a plan for you. I know it. I am convinced of it. It's just whether or not we are going to step up to the mark and go, let's do this. Let's do this. Because if we do, we're going to make waves in this community for the glory of Jesus. And that is awesome. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us. Man, that you have a plan for us. That you have a plan for us to do things in this community and in this church. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in each and every single one of us this desire to do much for Christ. That we might know the extent of your love for us, that we might be able to do all that you have called us to do. Help us to be a faithful church to do much for you, Lord. Lord, stir in those that don't, are, are idle and not doing much. Let them realize that in some way or another there is a plan that you have for them. That you have not disregarded their situation, but you have in their situation, something to do for your glory. I just, I just want faithfulness, Lord. Will you help us to be that? Help me as well, Lord, to be faithful. We ask, Lord, that we would come to Christ, that we come to you, Jesus. For in you there is hope, in you there is peace, in you there is a future that blows us away. And as Mark reminded us this morning, that you are with us. Oh, Lord, we don't have to fear, we don't have to worry. Because you are with us. You, are, you have a plan for us. And you, you don't just give us this plan and run away and leave us by ourselves to do it. But you are with us every single step of the way. Help us not to fear. Mobilize us, we pray, Lord. Use us. Here are our two uh, fish and our five loaves. Use it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.